This episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, here on The Ringer, we have our disagreements, but there shouldn't be any debate about this. Miller Lite is the great-tasting light beer with only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs. That's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light. So there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let me hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite, hold true. Navy Federal has a mission, to put members first by making their financial goals the priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information, call 1-888-842-6328, or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. Your cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself a constituent piece of the Ringer.com, uh, home to lots of wonderful con- content this week. Uh, let me point out specifically that as the MLB season is winding down, the NBA preview content is heating up. Uh, so I would encourage you to go check out our best case, worst case series uh, previewing each of the 30 teams, as well as John Gonzalez uh, went to LeBron James's media days first with the Lakers. And uh, we're all trying to grapple with how weird it looks to see LeBron in a Lakers jersey. And this is an important part of the healing process uh, as far as that goes. But we're not going to talk about LeBron here. We're going to talk about baseball with uh, two of our favorite baseball writers, Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh. Uh, first up, here's Zach Cram. So it is my distinct pleasure to, I say distinct pleasure a lot. I need to come up with a new, uh, a new intro, but whatever the intro, it is my pleasure to introduce newly minted staff writer, Zach Cram. Zach. Hello. We're going to dole out some awards, I guess is the the best way to, to talk about this. Kind of where we got this idea talking about sort of an all ringer team to honor players in 2018 who might not contend for like the actual MVP awards, though some of the players we'll name will contend for end-of-season hardware, but just players who have captured our imagination and fascinated us and who we've talked about both on the pod and just in the office and on Slack a lot, who we don't want to forget really fascinated us in 2018. Yeah, we had, there was a, some somebody posted, Chris Archer, said that Blake Snell ought to get MVP consideration. Somebody posted that in Slack last Friday. And that I've been thinking about nothing else, as you will uh, ever since, as you might notice by listening to this podcast and then reading my uh, column that's going to come out tomorrow. Uh, because it's this is something that's always bugged me. It's people saying in the conversation by way of saying, hey, this guy probably isn't going to win the MVP or win the Cy Young, but he's having a great season. I, you know, I want people to pay attention to it. And there, there needs to be, there ought to be a better way. And so uh, I think it was Jonathan Charks raised the idea of an all MLB team, which we sort of adapted to the all ringer team, which is we've Mal and I did something sort of like this uh, around the all-star break in 2016. So there might be some overlap between this team and, and, uh, and that team, but this is players that we have found fascinating that we've discussed a lot or we feel like have a certain je ne sais quoi that uh, that deserve recognition. And there will probably just looking at the list of people we've got, there will be very little overlap between uh, 
the players on this this list and the players probably on the top half of MVP and Cy Young ballots. So do you want to start? Sure. Uh, the catcher on our list, the the first and I think easiest selection for us, the the patron saint of the the All Ringer team in 2018 is Twins catcher Williams Estudio. Catcher, uh, basically every position besides shortstop, and even there, I think I saw a tweet that he was taking grounders at short the other day, so he could have fit in as our utility man. But Estudio, just everything about him is delightful and speaks to kind of what we were talking about last week is the fun of a. September baseball watch is watching players like this be able to come up and make an impact as Sudio is hitting 338, but that's not what makes us love him. It's the fact that in 24 games spanning 73 plate appearances, he has walked once and struck out twice. He's the anti-true outcome player. Um, and he is delightful to watch and in gifts and highlights. And I don't know, I think we've talked about him a lot already and it's uh, yeah, we devoted an entire pod, at least one entire podcast segment to him uh, when he first came up. The the best part about this Asudia run isn't just that we've been able to watch him; it's that he's played well enough that he'll be able to get a major league job again next year. So we'll be able to see him even more. And I I just hope that this impression doesn't wear off. Yeah, I uh, I'm feeling a little proprietary about him because I've loved Williams Asudia since he was the fourth best catching prospect in the Philly system uh, and taking funny pictures next to uh, now Rangers outfielder Carlos Toshi, who they look very much Bert and Ernie next to each other. Um, I love the walking. The the three true outcomes is is an effective approach for a lot of players, and it's probably the best way to go about it on a macro level. But like on some level, it's boring. And I like a, a, a hitter who's proactive, who puts the ball in play, who makes defenders work. And like you said, it's so cool to see like even as a Williams Asadio fan who a guy who liked him as a hitter um I did not expect him to be able to play multiple defensive positions effectively and or to you know we've been talking about him since spring training since he had that no look back pick uh so he's been a revelation defensively uh we love him to death I think if there if there was a ringer player of the year he would well it would be him or Otani. I'd probably stump for for Asadio. Um, but this is this is a tough. You know, I love Yasmani Grandal. Uh, ben tried to stump for Tyler Flowers for this position when we were spitballing last night. But there is there is but one one choice. Do you want to kick off the first base? Yeah. So we uh, we almost left this one vacant. Uh, because first basemen are boring by and large. Uh, every year when I do the all MLB.tv team, I'm like, well, there's Joey Votto, and I don't know who else is interesting. Because, I mean, first basemen tend to be that type of, of stand there and launch it uh, type of hitters. You know, it's very rare to see a first baseman with any sort of uh, exceptional athleticism. You know, I guess Cody Bellinger is an exception to that, but it would, he's as much an outfielder as a first baseman. Uh, so we finally settled on Maximum Muncie. Uh, who is, we are, I think, collectively fascinated by the Dodgers role player who uh, comes out of nowhere and turns into a star. You know, Justin Turner several years ago, Chris Taylor last year, Muncie is that guy this year. And, uh, you know, it's, this is sort of, there are some positions where it's easier than other to find others to find a fascinating player, but, but Muncie is it at first base. And I think, over the summer when Muncie's hot streak started to slow down, he slumped a bit. I kind of wrote it off as this was a really hot first half, and Muncie is certainly better now than he looked 
before 2018, but maybe he's not this good. And he's right back up again on the season-long WRC Plus leaderboard, which is the all-encompassing hitting statistic. Uh, Muncie ranks fourth. The top three are Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, and J.D. Martinez. So Max Muncie at this moment is leading the National League in the most important hitting statistic. And like the Dodgers have 15 good position players right now. So assuming they make the playoffs, I'm not sure how their platooning situation will break down and how much Muncie will play. But it's been a remarkable season. And like if it weren't for Otani and Asadio, we could just talk about Muncie every single day about how amazing it is that he's come out of nowhere to hit 33 home runs. He has almost a 400 on base percentage. It's remarkable. All right, so let's move on to... So this is where there are going to be a couple of these selections where uh, the amount we discuss one player or another is going to be skewed a little bit by the fan affiliations of the people who uh, who we work with. And I think this is one of them. Not to take anything away from the amazing season that Glaber Torres has had, but uh, this is at least somewhat a uh, a side effect of working with a ton of Yankee fans. And Glaber Torres has... I wouldn't say been lost in the shuffle uh, on this Yankees team, but I think I would. I think I think for as much attention as he as he got when he came up, like he he became f- uh, part of the furniture really, really quickly. Yeah, and the fact that Miguel Andujar, his fellow rookie in the infield, has been such a good hitter has meant Torres like isn't even the the top Yankee in the Rookie of the Year discussion. But he's been awesome. He's only in his age twenty one season. He. Uh, again, like Muncie sort of struggled when the the league's pitchers adapted to him over the summer, but then he's bounced back and he's been hot again recently. And it's just a, a core piece that the Yankees are going to have for years. And I assume, like you said, we'll keep hearing about him because of both how good he is and how young he is. And then also the fact that he plays for the Yankees. And one other thing that pushed him, it sort of kept him in the zeitgeist is that he was the big return piece in the Aroldis Chapman trade in 2016. And as every time we relitigate that trade, I mean, the way Torres was hitting when he first came up was uh, the cause for a lot of going back and discussing, was that trade worth it for the Cubs? And you know, I think this is one of those situations where, where both sides walk away happy, where I think even a lot of Cubs partisans would say, yes, that's a high price to pay, but we're not going back and screwing with the timeline where we won the World Series. Um, so you're, you know, if it's an overpay, you're sometimes you have to overpay. Uh, but that's just another way that that he's kept himself in the news. Moving on to shortstop, I think is an area where we had some disagreement. Again, partially uh, influenced by partisan interests. Uh, we and ha- also because the left side of the infield is just really crowded. I think that there's, if you want to talk about the most exciting, most fun. Uh, most compelling players in Major League Baseball, I would uh, I would say uh, an outsized proportion of, of those players are shortstops and third basemen. And that's true even though we've had some of them either slump uh, partially due to injury like Carlos Correa or miss mm-hmm. the season entirely due to injury like Corey Seager. Correa Cedar. definitely would have been, he might have been the ringer player of the year last year. And I think we ended up uh, agreeing to give this award to Manny Machado who has captured... Uh, fan interest on both coasts and both leagues uh, started out was maybe what like a top three hitter in the league for the first few months and he's cooled off a bit but still ranks pretty high up the leaderboard and also he's going to return to the playoffs this year in all likelihood and playing in LA and will I'm sure lead to a fascinating free conversation among ourselves and the baseball world at large in a month or two. 
Yeah. And another thing, you know, just like uh, a lot of this has to do with circumstance and it's not just the most fun player because I don't, you know, I don't think Machado is the most fun shortstop in, in the league. I'd probably go with, you know, Bobby uh, wanted us to pick Francisco Lindor. I'm a big Andrew Alden Simmons uh, partisan and but Machado has been in the news so much because he was the guy. He was the uh, he was the trade deadline uh, up until we got within a couple weeks of the deadline itself because he was the person who needed to move in order for everything else to happen. And he was it, going into to this offseason. He and Bryce Harper are going to be setting the market for free agents. And it's been since A-Rod, really, that we've had at least one player this good, this young hit the market. So I'm interested to see not only where he lands, but what kind of money he uh, uh, he commands as a free agent. So uh, he will remain in the news. He's obviously an excellent and uh, an excellent player and a lot of fun to watch. And, and we love him. Um, and he's sort of fall, but he's, he's sort of fallen into a place where uh, it's easy for us to discuss him. You know, he's just been uh, he's been front and center all year. Do you want to take third baseman? You wrote about this guy like a week into the season. Yeah, I I feel good. I don't know if I was way out in front on Matt Chapman. I think just if if you and I were the only people uh, whose opinions mattered as we're sort of putting together this team, I think the two of us collectively like Matt Chapman more than any other player in baseball. He is, there's something, and this might just be the result of growing up uh, rooting for a team, um, rooting for a team that had Scott Scott Rowland as its only good player, but I'm I'm just a sucker for exceptional third base defense. And Chapman, particularly with Machado moving off the bag, I think he's the best defensive third baseman in baseball. And even, you know, he's certainly more uh spectacular than maybe guys like Arenado or Adrian Beltre who uh who've closed in on him on the numbers. Um but just the way that he moves around the position is just incredible to watch. And he's been an incredible offensive player too. So you know, Matt Chapman, I think beating out Alex Bregman with the year that he's had, uh, Bregman is, I've sort of talked about privately about like, how do we cover baseball? You know, how do we cover baseball the way that we sort of cover the NBA, you know, centering personalities or uh, stuff like that. And Bregman is a very, he's a personality that I think would, is very well suited to being covered in this, uh, sort of 360 degree worldview that we have of, of, team sport athletes right now. I think he's somebody who not only in in addition to being an excellent player on, on an excellent team is I think he would make a really good heel. And I think that he's the kind of personality who would sort of lean into that a little bit in a way that maybe even Bryce Harper hasn't. Um, so I'm really excited to, to see where Bregman goes and I wanted to give this to him, but I mean, Chapman is obviously our guy. I think third base is not the most important defensive position on the diamond. That would be up the middle, shortstop, center field, catcher. But there's something ineffable about watching a dazzling third baseman. The the skill set required to both charge a ball and barehand it and fire to first and then also drift back into foul territory and make a catch near the tarp with you know, Chapman has a lot of room to do that in Oakland, and he just has all those bases covered. It's not often that I find myself watching a baseball game on like a random Tuesday night just to watch the chance that someone might make an amazing play. But I've watched a lot of Oakland baseball this year, and part of that is because the A's are just so good. But part of that is also that whenever Oakland is pitching, there's a chance that Chapman can make an amazing play. And even like Andrelton Simmons doesn't inspire that in me. And Maybe that's a personal failing, but there's just something about third basemen who 
aren't supposed to be the best defenders being able to cover all that ground. Well, I think there's something to third base being so close to the to home plate. Like shortstop is a little bit more of a reactive position. In third base, there's it's all reflexes are so big, positioning is so big, and there's some like there's an instinctiveness uh, and a, a fearlessness to to play that close to the bag. You know, I talked to uh, Joey Gallo about playing on the corners in in uh, the age where <laughs> where exit velocity is through the roof. You know, with somebody like. Uh, with somebody like Aaron Judge at the plate, for instance, and you know he admitted that like it's it can be a, a little scary to be that close to the ball when it when it can get on you that fast, and it requires like an instinctive artisticness in a way that I don't know that any other base that any other position in baseball really requires, and it, even beyond that, I don't think there's anything in football or basketball um, or even maybe ice hockey that. That requires the the level of of balance and reflexes um, and mobility that a great third baseman like Matt Chapman has. Like you think of somebody like you know, almost think of like a great box to box soccer midfielder as having that kind of uh, quickness and athleticism. And Chapman is just a joy to watch defensively. In addition to being a really good hitter, well said. Um... Speaking of guys we love to watch, uh, in the outfield, our first outfielder is maybe one of the, the most discussed players in MLB Slack this year, who is Yasiel Puig. Uh, part of that is because the Ringer is based in Los Angeles. And I think going to Dodger games really for the first time last year made me appreciate the relationship that Puig has with the fans in Los Angeles when he does something good versus when anyone else does something good. There's a different electricity in the crowd, the Puig chant that they all do. And I think the fact that he's been on a hot run recently maybe influenced this ranking, but the Dodgers have been playing a lot of important games and Puig has been coming up with a lot of important hits and he just plays the game with such a, a joy to vive and... I don't know if I pronounced that right, but you did not. But it's okay. <laughs> uh, but he is is a joy to watch, and that uh, captures the essence of this team. There's a self awareness to Puig's celebrity that is like you'd think that it's self aware without being cultivated. Um, you know, obviously, like Puig's got his own brand and stuff, and you know, you look at his Instagram, and it's a lot of him uh, pimping his Puig branded stuff. But there's it's it's not. Like it doesn't feel stage managed. It feels like he's just very aware of the crowd at all times. And he appreciates, uh, you know, he's there primarily to win, but also to put on a show where he can. And so like there's a, I don't know, like a, the, the word that popped in my mind was purity. And that's not quite what I mean. Like it's not, it's not innocent necessarily. It's just like he knows, he knows what the people want, you know, <laughs> like he's there to, he's there to give the people what they want. And I think that's very cool. And, you know, I think that there's it's cool to see baseball players really leaning into that, you know, understanding, understanding that they're playing for an audience. And I, you know, I think that this is the Dodgers have a lot of guys like this. I think the the Astros have a lot of guys like this that and it's it's interesting to see that play out. I think Puig really embodies that in addition to being himself an electrifying defender and a guy who who takes chances at the plate and on the bases that uh, that not many players do. In addition to being just like one of the most incredible athletic specimens in uh in baseball like he's he's a huge guy throwing himself around the way he does do you want to take the next outfielder um uh so ronald acuna uh 
How do we not put Trout in this outfield again? I think that's it's almost like are we just Trout, taking him for granted now? Maybe he just transcends the list in a sense. Like we also don't have Mookie Betts on the list. I don't know. Maybe we maybe we aired. I wonder if this is sort of a thing where like, you know, like Mickey Mantle didn't literally win the MVP every year. Uh, Acuna. So I wrote a couple weeks ago, like if I had to pick him or Juan Soto, one or the other, and Juan Soto is another guy who came close to making this list. Um, if I had to pick one of the NL East great rookie outfielders for the rest of his career, who would I pick? And I picked Soto because his plate discipline and power numbers are so incredible for a player of his age. You can't, you almost can't be this good, this young without going on a Hall of Fame trajectory for your career. And I stand by that, but Acuna is so much more fun to watch. Like the, I mean, we talked about him and uh, and Ozzy Albies at the beginning of the season, but his swing, like the the freedom with his arms, you know, you think of Harper, you think of Griffey, you think of Shohei Otani with uh, you know guys like who swing like that. Um, just his ability to to impact all levels of the game, I think he's a fascinating player and someone who just you know Atlanta is not getting a whole lot of, of shine right now. I think he's one of those guys who can who has a, the capacity to just explode if uh, if the Braves make a run in the playoffs and he and he plays well. I think he, like this could be, I guess the last guy to the last player to do this was probably Bumgarner in 2014. Even though he was more of a known quantity at the time, I think he's got. The, I think Acuna has a. Uh, the possibility to just become a huge deal uh, in the national sports landscape in the next few weeks. He's 20 years old. Like Juan Soto's a teenager, and it's an obvious thing to say, but Acuna's 20 years old. And so often, I think we'll talk about this with Otani in a second, but we come to expect so much from the prospects because players like Trout have performed so well as rookies in recent years. But even Trout struggled a bit when he came up the previous season. And We've become spoiled, but to see someone like Acuna, who had so much hype and so many expectations, pretty much meet or exceed all of them uh, this early in his career is remarkable and not something to take for granted. And he's not the only guy who's done this. Like I think the I remember as recently as, as 2013, it was actually when Puig came up. It was right after Harper and Trout came up in, together in 2012, and were among the best players in baseball right off the bat. And that sort of broke the curve. Like the two of them just completely shattered. Like Harper had had one of the five best seasons ever for a, a teenage rookie and Trout had had one of the five, be- had by far the best season ever by a 20 year old rookie right back to, you know, in the same season. And so when Puig came up, everybody's like, oh, is he the next Trout or is he ne- the next Harper? And, you know, the answer to that is obviously no, there's only one Trout. And I, but you've seen um, Carlos Correa and Francisco Lindor and now Acuna and Soto come up and we've seen players really perform at a, at a super high level at a very young age in a way that, you know, in this density, such as it's happened in the past couple of years, I don't know if that's uh, that's ever happened before in baseball. Uh, the last outfielder on our list who is displacing Trout, displacing Betts, displacing any other good Jackie outfielder Bradley. you can think of uh, is our first minor leaguer. Uh, we thought about working Vlad Guerrero Jr. in, but no, it's just this one minor leaguer. It's Tim Tebow. Uh, who is a bit of a troll selection, but I think one we talk about Tebow yeah, a decent this amount. Is, this is how this is where we figure out how far into this podcast Sean Fantasy listens, and, is, uh, <laughs> and is when we get the email about this. Two, if Tebow had not gotten hurt, I am like ninety eight percent convinced mm-hmm. he would have received 
uh, an at-bat in September this year for the Mets. He remarkably had a better-than-average batting line in A, which is the minor league level that really starts to separate the wheat from the chaff, which, I mean, like, a couple years ago, I picked up a softball bat for the first time in a few years, and it took me a few weeks to get my swing down for slow-pitch softball. Tebow hadn't played baseball for, what, a decade? And the fact that he's playing this well... And had probably not played it much much of a higher level of competition than you did. Last <laughs> right, time you played and, baseball or softball, and it's more impressive than like almost anything else that a minor leaguer has done this mm-hmm. year. Uh, he obviously has missed most of the season. His strikeout rate was the second worst in Double A, so it's not like he's that good a hitter. I don't think he would hit well if given the chance in the major leagues, but it's going to happen one of these days, and. Uh, it's going to be the most covered baseball story, and uh, I'm s- perhaps sorry to the Mets fans, but also this this fits in well with the narrative. I'm sorry for our country, but this is tremendous content. Um, you know, I've, this has always been sort of a troll opinion of mine that one of, that the most impressive athletic thing that Michael Jordan ever did was uh, playing was being just a merely bad double a outfielder, you know, 12 years after the last time he played competitive baseball and Tebow's better now than Jordan was when he was in double a by a significant amount. It's, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, Jordan was also a 30 steel guy in double a, um, but Tebow is just such a better hitter. And, you know, you really have to reevaluate. I thought this was a publicity stunt. I think everybody thought this was a publicity stunt on some level, but the fact that he stuck with it for, uh, you know, he's in his third season, if you want to count his, his 2016 Arizona Fall League campaign. Um, but he's stuck with it this long and he's, you know, he's not a prospect. I don't think for a second he'd be good in the big leagues, but he's not embarrassing himself out there, which is way more than I ever expected from him. So good for him. And, you know, thanks to Tim Tebow for giving us something to talk about. Uh, the other last thing I'll say about Tebow before we move on to pitchers is that it delights me to no end that. I think if you look at his his scouting tools, the worst grade he receives is on his arm. Uh, but we can move on. Which comes <laughs> as a surprise to nobody who watched him play quarterback uh, in the NFL. To people with actually good arms, uh, the first pitcher on our list also doubles as our designated hitter. It's a made-up team. We can play him every day if we want to. It's Shohei Otani. Um, Sam Miller for ESPN wrote a great piece in the offseason about like looking back on the last 100 plus years of baseball history and what do we remember from those years what's the one indelible takeaway and it's not always the world series winner it's if something weird happened or someone came up for the first time if a record was broken and i have very little doubt that in 50 years when we look back on 2018 the first thing that we'll remember is otani's debut he tried to do something that no one since babe ruth has done a hundred years ago and he succeeded he was babe ruth He's hurt, and he'll miss all of next season as a pitcher. But if Acuna uh, surprised me by meeting my expectations, my hype was Ota- for Otani was so much higher, and he met every single uh, iota of expectation I had. The only problem is that he got hurt, but even after he got hurt, he just became the best hitter in baseball. I think he has the best hitting line in September. So yeah. th- th- what do we say that we haven't said already? But yeah, Otani makes this team easily. It's... And Ben and I are going to talk about Otani later uh, in the next segment, but I've never seen this before. And I've watched a lot of baseball over the past 30 years, and it's not every day that that you see something at the highest level that you've never seen before. And 
I mean, I don't know that on some level, there's just nothing more to it than that. He's electrified the sport. He's brought interest in the sport that, that, you know, I don't think any other player is capable of doing. So I think, you know, he'd, we've, we talked about Chapman or Asadio being our all ringer player. I don't, I don't know how it could be anybody else, but Otani. Next up, Jacob deGrom. Um, I said almost everybody who uh, who's on this list will, will not go home with an actual award. I'm holding out hope that DeGrom will win the, the Cy Young. I think he's right now he's the front runner for me, although who knows what will happen. I mean, it's it's been his season has not only been incredible just on a, a strict performance basis, but the juxtaposition to the weird ineptitude of the Mets has been just remarkable to watch. I think uh, we've talked about this, but the fact that there is that juxtaposition has led to us talking about him so much more. Like he's had a, a better season than Aaron Nola, certainly, but we've talked about him. Uh, I think a disproportionately inordinate amount. Because I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think he's been particularly the way Nola's pitched the last. The standard is so high. I think Nola's really fallen off of him and Scherzer. Maybe we've we've talked about him versus Max Scherzer a disproportionate amount. Um, just based on performance, but go on. Uh, yeah, I just think that if you watch baseball in part because of the weirdness, which I think describes both of us. That is our uh, brand collectively. <laughs> DeGrom fits that so perfectly, and there is something really cool about a pitcher finishing with an ERA below two. I know round numbers are overrated and ERA itself is overrated, but there's some part of like the kid in me who would read the back of baseball cards at the age of six and see an ERA below two that still like activates that part of my brain right now. And I wasn't convinced he was going to make it that far, but it's almost a, a fait accompli at this point. And He's going to finish with one of the best pitching seasons in in my memory, if not longer. All right, let's uh, move on to another partisan pick. Shout out to Claire McNear. We're going with Derek Rodriguez, who has been partially uh, a pick for as like an avatar for the sons of big leaguers. You know, there's no shortage of those. We talked about Vlad Guerrero. There's Adalberto Mondesi. Um Boba Shed is going to come up in the next year with the Blue Jays. But Derek Rodriguez, on his own merits, has been really good for a kind of disappointing Giants team. Uh, 156 ERA plus in 115 innings pitched. I mean, that's incredible. And uh, with players like Noah Syndergaard not making our team and Jacob deGrom cutting his hair, uh, Rodriguez brings a great head of hair to our I was going to say, you think it's great. I think it's one of the worst haircuts in Major League Baseball. Well, I, I think in the the tradition of pitchers having wild hair on the mound. I, I think he, he fits a nice long lineage. Oh, I think no, I I don't think no haircut is necessarily a good haircut. I think it's just, <laughs> it just, it doesn't look purposeful enough. And if it's, if it's just going to be long and behind you, like DeGrom has incredible hair and, you know, as opposed to, you know, I think Rodriguez's hair is just sort of messy. I think Syndergaard's like, I don't know. Like it's it's approaching skullet territory. I think it's sort of stringy and not thick enough to get away with it being that long. But it's you know it's so much part of the the image now. Although it's the Thor thing, and Thor got a haircut, so maybe we just Taika Watiti for Mets general manager, and maybe we'll we'll take care of Noah Syndergaard's hair. Which is a nice inadvertent transition to our next pitcher, who recently had to shave his facial hair after joining the Yankees. It's your favorite player, Lance. Yep. Lynn. I'll clear out for you. 
I don't know what else there is to say. You know, I think he's one of the most underrated players in baseball. I think he has potential to swing this season for the Yankees. Um, He was a very shrewd pickup by the Twins. You know, he didn't pitch that well at the beginning as he was sort of working himself back into shape. He's pitched well for the Yankees since the trade. Um, You know, we're just going to look back at, you know, you're going to look at the numbers in 20 years and like, oh, yeah, Lance Lynn was a lot better than I remember. Lance Lynn was better than Hall of Famer Jack Morris, for instance. So, you know, I've wasted enough of certainly Ben's time with Lance Lynn. But, you know, this one, this one's for me, our last starting pitcher is for you. And he's not really a a starting pitcher at all, only in the strictest definition of the term. And that's Ryan Stanek. And I, I wrote about the, the Rays opener strategy when it began. I talked about it with enthusiasm on the podcast. And since the Rays instituted this strategy, they have the second best pitching staff in the majors behind only the Dodgers. And Part of that is because Blake Snell is possibly going to win the Cy Young, but beyond Snell, Chris Archer struggled and then was traded. Basically, every young pitching prospect they had hurt his arm in the offseason, and I think it's really going to change baseball. Just yesterday, the Yankees used the opener strategy in a game they needed to win against Tampa to keep pace with Oakland in the wildcard race, and they used it, and they gave a one run in nine innings. And I wouldn't be shocked if either the Yankees or the A's use some sort of version of this strategy in the wild card game. I'd also like to point out that uh, I think the stat I've seen most about Jacob deGrom this year is that he has the record for most consecutive starts allowing three or fewer runs in a season. He's up to 28 now. Well, number two on that list is Ryan Stanek with 27. And Stanek has made 27 starts. Of course, this is skewed because Stanek doesn't go more than one or two innings. But it's kind of funny that DeGrom could set this record and Stanek could break it before the season ends. Yeah, Ryan Stanek's legacy is just going to be making making fun facts slightly more annoying. Um, I'm just relieved that Stanek is coming good after I spent... All of my salary in 2013 buying Ryan Stanek futures when he was at Arkansas. Um, he has had sort of a rough injury played uh, rise through the minor league. So I'm glad that he's found his, uh, you know, turns out historic place in baseball history. So let's go through. We got two relievers, one for you. Like we've got to follow up Ryan Stanek with Ryan Yarborough. And uh, in keeping with the theme of baseball weirdness, I think. Yarbrough, who is kind of breaking the model for wins above replacement right now, which is a nerdy topic, but you and Ben talked about this a few weeks ago. So I'll briefly gloss over that. Basically, because relievers as a whole have better per inning ERA numbers than starters, you know, because they're only pitching an inning at a time, the baseline is a lot higher for relievers. So the fact that Yarbrough, who is pitching a starter's innings workload, but with a starter's ERA, is technically a reliever means he's breaking this model. People who deal with war having to figure out whether they should adjust their model, which fascinates me in a behind the scenes sense. Also, he's a reliever who has 15 wins this year, which highlights the absurdity of win loss numbers. And I I couldn't add Stanek to this team without having his counterpart in Yarborough who comes in as the long man. We still haven't come up with a, a good name for the position that Yarborough occupies in the race system, but long man, bulk reliever, something like that, uh, he fits because you have a one-inning closer. All right. And real quick, let's speak of one-inning closers. Edwin Diaz has been the constant, the North Star. I think it's uh, perhaps instructive that 
you've picked uh, an extremely forward-looking futuristic reliever for your uh, for your guy. I've picked about as traditional. I've picked the major league leader, leader in saves uh, for mine. So, um, and real quick, because we're running out of time, I don't think there can be any uh, all ringer team without Gabe Kapler as the manager. We've certainly discussed him a fair amount. Um, so, there we go. The all ringer team. Unless you got anything else to add. No, I I think I would. Even though we didn't pick this team for quality, I would pick this team to maybe advance around in the playoffs. You think so? They have the I, pitching. Yeah, the pitching if Otani's healthy. Yes. Well, I mean, that's a question with everything. So, all right, we will uh, be back. This will be the last time you and I talk about the regular season because we'll be back to talk about the playoffs because that'll be happening when we see you next week. So, Zach Cram, thanks for joining the show. Until then, thanks to Zach Cram. We'll be right back with Ben Lindbergh after this. Playing sports is great, so it's watching your favorite team win a game. But we can all agree on one thing, sleeping is even better. Mattress Firm wants you to sleep better on a new mattress at an unbelievably low price. That's why they're our team captain when it comes to helping you sleep better. Mattress Firm selection is unheard of, and the savings they offer are out of this world. No one else can compete. If it were a football game, you'd have changed the channel by now. With more than 3,000 stores nationwide, every shopping experience is a home game. They're in your neighborhood, but if you're glued to the sofa, they've also made online shopping simple. They offer next day or same-day delivery, as well as a 120-night low-price guarantee, so you know you're getting the best price. Nobody can offer you more bed for fewer dollars. Mattress Firm has a game plan for everybody and every budget. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and enter the code PODCAST10 for 10% off, because who doesn't deserve a nap? This episode is also brought to you by Bombas. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness, Bombas feel like a hug around your foot. Not to mention Bombas stay-up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark. And the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. So whether you're a runner, power walker, or a power lounger, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. Now, I'm not a big socks person. I like to walk around my house barefoot. But one thing I do love about socks is that new sock cushiony feeling. And that's what you get with Bombas all the time. And now you can experience this as well. You can go to bombas.com slash MLB and use the code MLB for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MLB, code MLB, and you'll get 20% off your first order. And now, back to Ben Lindbergh. All right, so Zach and I have talked about our favorite players uh, this season. So here comes Ben Lindbergh to join me to talk about some of the biggest storylines, not necessarily our favorite storylines. There are a couple bummers in here, uh, a couple uh, good news, bad news propositions, but we're going to real quick run down by way of review, you know, talking about uh, some of the biggest stories of 2018. And then, you know, I, Hinted at this in the at the beginning, but there is no bigger storyline in, in 2018 than Shohei Otani. Yeah, I think that's true. These, in my mind, I'm thinking of these as the stories that in future years, I'll look back and I'll think, oh, 2018, that was the year when X, right? And mm-hmm. I think Shohei Otani, that is probably the number one thing on the list for me because coming into the year, it was the thing I most wanted to see, how he would do. He was trying to do something that hadn't been done since Babe Ruth. There was a lot of doubt that he could do it. And then he really, the first week or so of April, I think, showed us that he could. And I wrote about this recently for TheRigger.com, but I think his season has fully lived up to the hype. I am 
disappointed in a sense that he did get hurt and wasn't able right. to do what he did more. 50 innings is a bummer. It but... is. Yeah. And, you know, he missed time as a hitter too. And because they were handling him so as to prevent what eventually happened, he didn't get that many plate appearances. So, you know, I, I think just in terms of the quantity, we could have wanted more. But in terms of the quality, he was every bit as good as we could have hoped, I think, really on both sides of the ball. I think he totally justified our faith that he could do something that hadn't been done for a century. And that really confused my expectations going into the season. I think I was sort of skeptical at the beginning. I thought he'd be good, but like to a large extent, I just didn't know what to expect. I had never, mm -hmm. you know, he was not, you know, forget the two-way thing. Like we had almost never seen a player like this come over from Japan before, yeah. you know, in terms of his age, his stuff, his athleticism. So, you know, I did, it, it, he's been, he was the coolest thing to happen in baseball this year. I, yeah. Yeah. You know, unless I'm I'm missing something incredibly <laughs> no. obvious, right? No, I mean, you know, I'm sure people are thinking, what, this guy who was hurt half the year and was on a team that's not making the playoffs, he was the top story of the season. I get that. But he was the number one reason that I ever tuned into a baseball mm -hmm. game this season, I think. Like the most common reason for me to fire up MLB TV and choose one particular team rather than just put baseball on in the background was Shohei Otani because I wanted to see every inning he pitched and every plate appearance he made. And for the most part, he didn't disappoint because he's become one of the best hitters in baseball and was just nasty when he was pitching and particularly in May once he got his breaking ball. And it was just a, a spectacle that we haven't seen. I was giddy watching it. And I think one thing that the importance of this really can't be overstated is he got people who aren't necessarily big baseball fans interested in the sport. Like it was mm -hmm. obvious that he was special and drew in attention. Like, you know, I think back to the, I think back to a lot to the conversation you and I had with Bill earlier in the season yeah. about, you know, he's, Otani was a reason that he'd want to take his kids to his, to an Angels game when they, you know, they wouldn't go ordinarily. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, it, it was obvious even to people who aren't uh, diehard baseball fans, you know, and I'm not talking about Bill in, in this respect, but like, it's obvious to everybody that, that he is special and yeah. we don't see that that often in baseball. So yeah. I think, you know, there's been the Tommy John, the way that, you know, that blown UCL happened and some of the, the stuff around that, you know, I wish he'd played more, but, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of when he was actually on the field, it was incredible. You know, I don't yeah. know when we're ever going to see any something say, I put it to, to Zach like this, like we've watched a lot of baseball. I've never seen anything like this. And no. that's, you don't, you don't get something you've literally never seen that often in baseball. So I right. think for that reason, Otani, uh, is deservedly the biggest story of the year. C completely agree. And he was a very personable player. He's mm -hmm. charming to watch. He's easy to root for. And the yeah, video I of him singing on the bus. Despacito, yes. That's, he can sing too. <laughs> he like can. he's not bad. Despacito, yeah, three-way player. Yeah, he could do it all. So he's the best, and I can't wait till 2020 when he comes back and lays waste to the league again. Although I hope that he continues to hit next year. I was going to say, I'm, yeah. like, if, if he gets 500 plate appearances next year, that could be cool even if he doesn't throw a pitch. Yes, definitely. Um, speaking of, of unique pitcher usage, I think the number two story has to be bullpenning. And again, Zach mm -hmm. and I talked about this. We, we put Ryan Yarborough and Ryan Stanek on our all-ringer team for this year, and it's – 
It's been controversial, and I'm sort of in two uh, in two minds about it. I think this is one of those good news, bad news propositions. That yeah, it's I'm all for innovation. You know, I'm I'm interested in seeing the ways that that teams and players and front offices try to uh, you know exploit inefficiencies. It's sort of a soulless way to put it, but find creative <laughs> ways to win. Like this is the equivalent of an NFL team running the air raid or something like that, or or the Rockets shooting nothing but layups and three pointers and right. It, uh, there, it's fraught with you know. How do you build a team around this? What does this do for uh, to you know the statistical implications of uh, of having of essentially reversing starter and reliever roles? You know, and, mm-hmm. and Zach brought up Ryan, uh, Yarbrough's war and Stanek's streak of of starts allowing fewer than however many earned runs, and it's it's just something that I think the game it'll remain kind of uncomfortable until we all get used to it. And I think, you know, I don't think there's a time in the near future when every team is going to run out uh, the opener, you know, four times a week. But uh, this is something that's going to happen. And it's, I think it's going to happen more down the stretch with the expand, expanded rosters and, um, and as games become, you know, higher stakes. Yeah, and there are questions about how it affects salary structure mm-hmm. and how many that, teams yeah, it, it makes sense to to do this with. But I agree, it's creative and it is thinking outside the bounds of how baseball usually works. And I mean, that's the common theme here with Otani and with the opener. We've been watching baseball our whole lives. We want to see something new. I mean, we like baseball as it is too. That's why we're still watching, but we want to see it kind of pushed and pulled and tweaked and see what it can look like. And the opener has been a new look for baseball. And I think maybe the most interesting aspect of it is how quickly it has spread because they I say, I was just going to say, that. you know, it's a copycat league. I mean, that's a cliche and sure. Every innovation ev- eventually just spreads and, and other teams will adopt it. And we've seen that with the Rays before. This is not the first time they've done something new or creative, But the fact that this opener strategy has spread the way it has, where you now have, I mean, it must be close to half the teams, it seems like, have tried it at this point. And that's amazing to me because it's not an enormous edge. You know, I I think it helps and it helps if your staff is constructed in, in such a way that it would benefit from this. But it's not like, you know, you're getting runs per game advantages here. It's a, a small advantage, I think. And yet teams are so desperate to find and seize any edge these days that we have seen a whole lot of teams, including a lot of contending teams, try the opener down the stretch. And it's just like once one team does something and, you know, dares the the blowback, then other teams are thinking, well, mm-hmm. they got away with it. Now we can do it too. And that's how quickly it can change. So that, I think, just the, the pace of the evolution of the sport these days, that's the most fascinating element to me. Because in the past, you might see a team try something and it might have a monopoly on that idea for a while. And now, I mean, the Rays had this to themselves for, what, a couple months and then the Dodgers were doing it and the A's are doing it and the Rangers are doing it and the Twins and, you know, everyone's doing it suddenly. It's just, it went from, something we'd almost never seen before to something that teams are doing routinely in the course of half a season. And it's it's not out of nowhere because this is sort of out of it's of a piece with the gradual evolution of this of reducing the role of the starting pitcher, which has been, you know, if not a straight line, then at least directionally consistent for 130 years. Yeah. But it's it's jarring and I think it's criticized more than it might have been otherwise because it's just turning it on its head. It's ju- it's a change. It's not. 
it's not entirely an evolution. Like we're so used to baseball being almost unrecognizable from 25 years in the past to another point, 25 years in the future, but it's all gradual. Like you just sort of, you don't wake up one day and find out that people are just not stealing bases anymore or mm-hmm. that, or that people are striking out twice as much as they were a generation ago. Like it just happens gradually over time. And this just happened like one day, the race <laughs> right. just decided they were going to do this. And yeah. it, it, that's, you know, for good or ill, that's, it's unusual. Yeah, I think so. And as you said, this is part of a larger evolution going on in the game. And there are other little things that we could point to that are part of this, like just the explosion in the rate of position players pitching this year. Mm -hmm. That's something that was kind of quirky and cool a few years ago. And now it just happens all the time, which has sapped some of the fun from it. But I think the impulse is the same. You just want to be efficient if you're not going to win the game. Don't use your reliever who might actually be important the next day. Just throw a position player out there and every now and then the position player can really pitch and that's fun. Usually not. Usually he just throws slop up there and and gets blown away. But I think that As you said, these aren't necessarily improvements to baseball. I don't know whether baseball is a better game because these things are happening. I mean, if we're talking about more and more strikeouts and more pitching changes, I mean, these are not necessarily spectator-friendly innovations and evolutions. But And I I think think you lose something you lose something not having the classic pitcher's duel, right? Yeah, like, I you, think so. you know, looking forward to what's probably going to be an Astros Indians division series. I mean, these are two teams that have good bullpens or well, have had good bullpens. <laughs> and recently they've yeah. had, the Indians have a lot of relievers who have been good in the recent past. <laughs> uh, perhaps might be a more accurate way to put yes. that. But they've got traditional workhorse starting pitchers. Like you could see Verlander versus Trevor Bauer going into the eighth inning or Kluber versus Cole or, you know, ha- like as creative as those teams have been with the bullpens, like you can see the Smoltz versus Jack Morris thing happening in that series. And that, you know, there's maybe I'm just being sort of old and conservative about this, but I would miss that if it was truly gone. Yeah, no, I think that's true. There's something to the starter going deep into the game and finishing it himself, even if it's not optimal, even if we know now that there is a cost associated to that. It's still fun to watch. And there are a lot of reasons to think that bullpenning or that the evolution in pitcher usage is not making baseball a better game. And maybe at some point the league has to step in and and put some constraints on what yeah, teams can do Yeah, I'll believe that here. when it happens. Yeah, I mean, that, there's no precedent for the league really doing anything in the last few decades to curb this kind of innovation. And in general, as you said, I don't really want to do away with innovation or tell teams that they can't win in a certain way if they find a, a loophole to exploit. But I think it is fun to watch just as an intellectual exercise, right. just to see how teams figure out how to win in an era when it's harder to win and harder to separate yourself from other teams than I think it ever has been before. Yeah. So that sort of leads into one of the next storylines that you pointed out is the great gulf between the best teams in baseball and the worst teams in baseball. Yeah. Well, just as I finished saying, it's harder than ever to separate yourself from other teams. (laughs) There are races where teams have separated themselves by more than ever before. I think Mm -hmm. as we speak now, the Orioles trail the Red Sox by 60 and a half games which I think is tied with the 62 Mets for the biggest division deficit 
since the game was integrated. I mean, this is historic I'm very happy. I mean, certainly since Divisions. I imagine there had to be something bigger when everybody was just in one pot as a league. But I'm glad you looked that up because I didn't want to go all the way back. And I got back to 98 when it hit 50. (laughs) And I'm just like, I don't want to keep clicking back. Yeah. And again, not necessarily a good thing for the game or for spectators that this is happening. But it is definitely one of the things that we will look back at the season and think that was what distinguished this season. And it was something that we thought coming into the year that there were these super teams and there were these decidedly unsuper teams. And for the most part, that played out, right? I mean, of those, what, seven or so teams that everyone thought were locks to make the playoffs, the Nationals are really the only one who won't Mm -hmm. make it. And I think we've seen more competitive races than we might have expected. But it's true. I mean, we got to see the Red Sox go for win records. They set their franchise win record. We've got to see the Orioles go for depths of incompetence that we couldn't have imagined coming into the season, which is odd because if you had told me that a team was going to challenge records for all-time terribleness coming into the year, I wouldn't have picked the Orioles. They wouldn't have been my, my top pick, but they have certainly delivered in that area. And, you know, you have the AL Central, which may be the weakest division of all time. Again, not necessarily good that we have the weakest division of all time, but memorable and notable. Yeah. And this is sort of different from, I think there are elements of a trend to this because, you know, we we had 300 win teams last year. um, And that used to be something that just happened once every two or three seasons instead of, uh, having three teams do it every year. Yeah. Uh, so there are elements of this that are a trend, but I think a lot of this it just sort of feels exacerbated uh, by the Red Sox, and frankly, the Red Sox and Orioles being in the same division and mm-hmm. all of the, you know, the AL Central um, and all of those lopsided pennant races sort of being in the American League all at once because the National League's been relatively flat and relatively competitive, yeah. uh, which we talked about last week. So, it, but it'll, you know, trend or fluke or or not, it's definitely something we're going to remember. Yeah, right. That's another notable thing about the season is that really all the intrigue was in one league in terms of the pennant races, at least. I mean, the NL has been a free-for-all for much of the season and the AL has been almost set for much of the season. So that's unusual too. And I hope and think that this is just a a cyclical, temporary state of affairs. You have a bunch of rebuilding teams and a bunch of juggernauts, and I don't think that will persist forever. I I think it would be bad if it did, but it probably won't. But this has been the year when all of that has kind of come to a head. Right. I've got one more that is just sort of broad-based. You know, Do you have anything else that you want to highlight for the this season? Yeah. Well, I think the AL West race has been one of the highlights of the season for me because I didn't expect there to be an AOL, AL West race, and there has been, and it's been a fun one. I thought the Astros would more or less run away with this thing. I thought they were the best team in baseball. They are great, and they will win this division, but it's been a dogfight, and the way in which it's been a dogfight has been pretty intriguing because for the first half of the season, you had the Mariners, who were seemingly on pace to have the best one or to run game records of all time. They were clearly over their heads, but it was really fun to watch them be over their heads and to root for the Mariners fan base to actually make it back to the playoffs. 
And then, of course, they've kind of collapsed, although it's not so much them collapsing as it is the A's turning into the best team Mm -hmm. in baseball out of nowhere. I think, you know, a lot of us kind of like the A's coming into the season, but since mid-June, they have the most wins in baseball and they've been incredible. And I don't think anyone really saw that coming. So we've seen these two teams challenge the Astros in ways that I didn't think they had in them, and they've done it in really improbable ways. I mean, the Mariners were over their heads. The A's are kind of over their heads, but in a different way. It's not so much that they're exceeding their run differential or something like that, although that's part of it. But it's also that they're just cobbling together a rotation out of nothing. I mean, Mm -hmm. coming into the year, if you had told me that they were going to get what they've gotten out of Trevor Cahill and Edwin Jackson. Well, I was going to say forget – uh, forget coming into the season, like the middle of July, I wrote yeah. something about how Sean Mania was the most irreplaceable player in baseball. For, right. And, and now he's gone. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brett Anderson is another one. Uh, Joe Sheehan pointed out that these A's are going to be the team that makes the playoffs with by far the fewest innings ever from their starting pitchers, mm-hmm. which again, that fits into the trend we were talking about earlier. You can just kind of bullpen your way to the playoffs if you have a good enough bullpen and the A's have Blake Trinan having this historic relief season and a lot of guys in that bullpen you wouldn't have seen coming either and you know they've got defensive standouts they've got guys who can mash I mean it's just a a fun team to watch and and it sets it up as the one surprise team in the American League too right they set themselves up as a really attractive underdog particularly against the Yankees but if they win that game then they're going to be the the popular favorite, uh, neutral fans favorite, probably to win the national or the American League. And as was making the rounds on Twitter after they clinched, they're the first team to make the playoffs after having the lowest opening day payroll in baseball, which again, not to valorize not spending. We're not making a normative statement about that. But but it is impressive and unusual. And so that's, you know, we're in this to see things that we haven't seen before. And this is another one of those things. All right. And the thing I wanted to sort of end with is like this has been and could continue to be a season for for endings. I mean, so, mm. you know, we're probably seeing the the last of David Wright this week. You know, Chase Utley is going to retire. Um, Victor Martinez is already retired. Jason Worth is already retired. Um, Joe Maurer is thinking about retiring. He's certainly coming to the end of his tenure with the Twins. Adam Jones coming to the end of his tenure with the Orioles. And, you know, Mike Sosha is uh, almost certain to leave the Angels after this season. His yeah. contract, which I never thought was going to end, has finally <laughs> yeah. uh, has finally come to an end. This Bartolo could be the Colon end. May Bartolo Colon, Bartolo Colon, Adrian a- Beltre mm-hmm. may be done. Let's hope Buck not. Buck Showalter might be done. Mm-hmm. Um, you just like look at these these guys who have been fixtures in baseball, uh, not just back into the 2000s, uh, but, you know, you look at. Show Walter and Bartolo Colon, those guys have been around in baseball pretty much as far back as I remember. Yeah. And it's it, this might just be something that's specific to our generation of fans. You know, uh, you know, we were kids when Bartolo Colon was first pitching for the Indians, and we were, you know, really developing our interest in baseball the way we have it now, uh, when we were high school and college students, when guys like Utley and Wright and Victor Martinez and Maurer all broke in. You know, Joe Maurer was one of the and Utley were two of the great first great like Saber 1.0 champions, you know, guys Mm -hmm. who debates about how good they were came into the mainstream um, and all that, you know, could be coming to an end. So I think that's, you know, it's it's something that, uh, you know, I again, like, I think it's just 
probably coincidence that all these guys just happen to get old around the same time. But it, it does sort of feel like the closing of, of one book. And maybe that's just uh, unique to to me or people our age. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, that does feel significant that we could be saying goodbye to all these fixtures of the game all at the same time. Yeah. I mean, there are always people aging out of the game and torches being passed. And in the last few years, I think one of the best and most notable things about baseball is the youth movement and mm-hmm. the wave of incredible young players coming into the game. And as Craig Edwards pointed out at Fangraphs, this is the best collection of age 25 players in history. And, you know, we're seeing all of that and it's great. And we can look forward to the next decade of those guys being amazing and being the guys that we talk of in the way that we are talking about, right? and Maurer and Cologne and Beltre 10, 15 years from now. But it is sad to see those guys go. And that's an inevitable portion of, uh, an inevitable part of, of watching baseball and rooting for baseball and being reminded of your own mortality as the players you grew up watching get old mm-hmm. and less good at what they and, do. <laughs> and maybe this is a, you know, this comes at a different point for, you know, you being a, you know, someone who grew up following the American League East, maybe this happened when Jeter and Pettit and Posada and right. David Ortiz, Ortiz all, were, yeah. Yeah, all retired uh, a few years ago. And it's, you know, it's sort of lagging because Utley and Wright and, and Worth were those guys. Uh, for mm-hmm. me, you know, Cole Hamels is is coming close to the end, uh, which yeah. boggles my mind. You know, death come, death smiles for us all, <laughs> smiles at us all. Right. Um, yeah. And before we end, I'll just mention Jacob deGrom's season as another one that I think I will remember this season by. I mean, in the way that we still think about Felix Hernandez in 2002, winning the Cy Young with a 13 and 12 record. I think it's bigger than that. Oh, I think so too. I mean, it's in the same lineage and maybe Felix's season helped break down that barrier. But deGrom right now is nine and nine. If he wins a Cy Young award with that sort of record with no more than 10 wins and maybe with a higher wins above replacement than he does wins. I mean, that's something I've been following and enjoying all Mm -hmm. season. And I think he will break down that wall completely. There's just no way even to pretend that wins and losses matter all that much when you see the dominance of DeGrom. And, you know, it's the most Mets thing imaginable. And so it's kind of fun just to troll Mets fans because as if they don't have it hard enough, now DeGrom is their ace and can't win a game. It's sort of hard to troll Mets fans. Like there's a sense (laughs) that like, yeah, yeah, like they know, like you're not going to tell them anything that they don't already know. (laughs) Right. But even like comparing this to uh, Bartolo in, or not Bartolo, Felix Hernandez um, when he won the Cy Young or Zach Ranke in, in 2009, like it feels almost Bob Gibson. Like yeah. that's, that's what I keep coming back to is, is Gibson in 1968. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, this is a historically great season and I, you know, there for, you know, it's, it's so hard. I don't think you can really match some of the great Randy Johnson or Pedro Martinez uh, seasons yeah. uh, around the turn of the century, just because you can't get that far ahead of the league wide strikeout rate now. Yeah. Like they were striking out batters at the rate that Chris Sale is now mm-hmm. on a strikeout rate that was two or three strikeouts per nine innings lower. Right. And you just and can't Pedro do that. And the, the AL East and the right. PED era with that in Fenway. I mean, once you park adjust and era adjust and league adjust that, it's just mind boggling that he, he did that. And and same with Maddox in the in the mid nineties. And you, you yeah. can't you can't outperform the league that much anymore. The standard mm-hmm. is so much higher. But just in terms of raw numbers, you know, Zach talked about looking at an ERA that starts with one, you know, yeah. whatever DeGrom ends up at, it's going to stick in your head the way 112 does or 196 mm-hmm. uh, with Denny McLean. So it's, you know, this is a special season. I think we're very much aware of how special a season he's having as we're watching it. 
Yeah. It's taken great restraint for me not to say that this is the season of Williams Astadio, but that is- We already uh, talked about him. He, okay. <laughs> he's, he was our runner-up to Otani for uh, for ringer player of the year. Okay. So. Yeah. So that's how I will remember 2018, Absolutely. but I'm not sure that that's a universal sentiment. All right. So we hope that you all remember the 2018 season fondly. This is going to be our last- uh, podcast before uh, the end of the regular season. So we'll Mm -hmm. be back with you next week to talk about uh, the playoffs and throughout the month of October. And Ben will be back and I look forward to talking to you. And thanks for, for joining me. I live for this. That'll just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Thanks to Ryan Stanek, Shohei Otani, and Tim Tebow for giving us material to talk about. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for stitching today's episode together. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the final week of regular season action, and we'll see you next time.